Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Aglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Mandy Hill, who is the Managing Director of Academic Publishing at Cambridge University Press, where she is responsible for the quality, development, and performance of the publishing programs worldwide. We featured a lot of very new companies on RaiseLine, and it's really interesting to be able to feature someone who represents an organization that was founded in 1534, with their 500th anniversary coming up in just 14 years. And so while Mandy hasn't been through a lot of pandemics, certainly the organization has, and I'm very interested to hear how it's adapted over the years. So in Mandy's career, she's worked for some of the most prestigious publishers in the world, including Oxford University Press and Elsevier and started her career with a focus on medicine and science, which is why we're talking today. I'm looking forward to speaking with her about the evolving role of medical authors among related topics. And as a side note, Mandy and I were introduced by Al Cassio of the U.S. Office of Cambridge University Press, who I met at the ASU GSV conference. So I'm really grateful to Al for making that introduction. So Mandy, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So can you start by telling us a bit more about your background and what got you into publishing in the first place? Yeah, certainly. So I did a degree in biochemistry in Bath University in the UK, knew that I didn't want to do a PhD, wondered what I was going to do with a degree in biochemistry. So like many people in the publishing industry, I kind of fell into it without really knowing what I was getting myself into. But I guess that, you know, the fact I've been in this industry now 30 years tells you that I I like it. And it's worked really well for me. And I think one of the things that, that I was really drawn to having done a degree in biochemistry, and all the way through that, I was I was drawn into the into the medical sciences. I was I felt that with publishing, I was able to use my degree, tap into the fact that I I love the the sciences, the medical sciences, stay connected to what was going on. So it was a way for me to stay connected, but without needing to do a PhD. And I think that one of the things that I've always enjoyed about having a career in publishing is you are staying connected, but you help you feel like you're helping inform debates and move things forward ensure that people are getting the information they need so you feel like you're making a difference so it's 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 been an incredibly rewarding industry to be part of and it's changed a lot over those 30 years which has kept it really interesting well i'd love to hear in your personal experience over those 30 years what are some of the milestones and inflection points of change that you've seen and we'll obviously get to covid in a, in a bit but first pre-covid pre-2020 what are some of the, yeah. the changes including i'm sure the digitization that you're going to talk about Absolutely. I mean, so when I when I started in publishing in back in the early 90s, I started in a production department, copy editing with a pen in my hand and paper in front of me. Somebody sent us a floppy disk. We threw it in the bin. No one had computers on their desks. So that that's the environment I started publishing in. When we started putting journals online in, in the mid 90s, sticking a PDF online was exciting you know, a flat PDF up online. And if someone found it, you got really excited. And now, of course, having our content online isn't enough. It's it's how accessible you make it, the functionality you add to ensure it's really meeting user needs, and thinking about how we can extend that and make sure it's accessible and, and informative for as many people as possible, and making sure that the right people find the right content to meet their needs as quickly as possible. All of that just makes it so much more exciting. And then, of course, it's opening up the opportunity for new business models as well. So open access is the other big topic of conversation for many of us in publishing. And that's only possible because of content being available online. So I think when we when we think about those inflection points, 
journals going online, 10 years later, content for books going online, and then all of that opening up the opportunities for open access, which started in, in the early 2004, something like that. You know, there's, there's some big, big changes. Yeah, no, certainly. I'm definitely, you know, things like Wikipedia going online and completely changing how, how people you know, at least Encyclopedia Britannica, how people engage with with printed encyclopedias and, and now uh, having a living, breathing type of reference, which also opens up the doors for trust issues, right? Credibility issues. I'm very curious what your thoughts are on how that has changed and how, you know, some one of the most trusted brands in the world, if not the most trusted publishing house, the Queen's printer, I believe you all are called, how do you view that and, you know, the balance between being first or being recent and updating content versus being trustworthy? Yeah, it's a really great point and so important. And I, I remember the launch of Wikipedia and just thinking, why would anyone trust this? Why would, why would you go, go to get information from Wikipedia? You know, clearly you're going to use a trusted source where you, you know experts have, have written that content. But we all use those sources now. We all just take it for granted that you can go online and, and, and access information but I do think that for many of our users, they, they've become quite discerning about when, it, when do you want a quick answer and when do you want an answer that you know is right? If I want a, a recipe, I'm going online and I'm finding the first thing. If I wanted to, to you know, understand the treatment that I was getting from my doctor, I'm not going to trust Wikipedia for that. That's you know, personal. You know, so... I think that that sense of what, how important is that information to you? How how important is it is its accuracy? I think in those early days, people didn't have that understanding of when did it matter. And now I think people have have become much more expert in their use of, of content. And I and largely I think people are more discerning about when they use different sources. So you're right. As, as Cambridge University Press, peer review is absolutely central to who we are. Everything we publish, everything we, we, all of our contracts are approved by the syndicate, which are academics within the university. That bar of quality that they set for us is, is fundamental and really informs the way we behave. And, and I think it does, does add to that, that trust and means that when somebody, whether it's a researcher, a patient, a student, accesses our information, they know that they can trust it. And, and, and that matters to us as part of the press, it gives us a sense of pride in what we're doing because people can rely on the information they get from us. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. And as someone who's, who's read many of your publications, you know, it matters that, that there is that peer review process. Now, what are some of the titles you personally are most proud of bringing to, to audiences? And can you give us a bit of a sense of the scope as far as how many titles, uh, how many authors in your database, and then also any measurement of like how many students or, or researchers or even the public that, that you, you believe you all have reached? Yeah, no, it's great questions. And, and the data is, is one of those things that is becoming much more accessible for us. In the bad old paper days, you know, you'd send out paper copies and you never knew whether, whether books and journals stayed in their wrappers and, and never made it off a shelf or whether they were being intensely read. Whereas now we, we can get that, that data. And it's really, it really matters to us because it informs what we do next. So in terms of number of books we, we publish, we have over 30,000 books on our catalogue. We publish 1,500 books a year. We publish over 400 journals, about 30,000 journal articles a year. So that's sort of output. In terms of usage, and I'm not going to remember the, the usage article numbers offhand, but it, we're talking in the millions of, of, of downloads. Our content is, and that's just growing by 15 to 20% every year. 
And in fact, I think it was a 25% increase in our online usage last year. So it really just shows this significant uplift that people want access to it to high quality information. And this comes back to the point you were making earlier. People can access information in lots of different ways, but when we're seeing that significant increase in our usage all of the time, that tells tells us that people want access to high quality information and it really matters to them. Yeah, 100%. And so with with 30,000 titles and 1,500 new a year, that's a lot of potential authors to look at and, and select. You know, one of the most famous authors Cambridge has published was actually during one of the major pandemics, Isaac Newton. You know, he he wound up writing some of his most seminal work during one of a major pandemic and then Cambridge published that work. You know, hopefully there'll be some awesome titles coming up next year as a result of people having more time to to be there, you know, modern day Isaac Newtons. But how do you personally screen for and select great medical authors and science authors and contributors with that much volume coming your way? Yeah, so we have a, a team of really talented commissioning editors who know their subjects well and really spend time with, with their authors to understand the proposal. So the, the, the process is often that the, an author will, will have an idea, will discuss it with a commissioning editor, the commissioning editor will, will help them hone that idea, and we send that out for peer review. We don't send everything out for peer review, so for any budding author out there who's sending their, their book proposal in to us, don't be disheartened if we if we don't even send it out for, for peer review because it happens to many titles. We just will say, whatever reason, this isn't the right title for us or sometimes we're not the right publisher for you. We can spot if there's a title that actually, there's a, pub, a different publisher who's got a different list that it would work better for them. So we will, we will take it through peer review, which means we're sending out to, you know, it can be as many as for, for textbooks, it could be 10 to 15 references we'll get on on a on a book before we even accept it once we've contracted a textbook it then goes through a development process so that each individual chapter is going out for review and development all of the time to get it make it better and better and making sure it's really hitting those pedagogical marks and is is achieving what it's supposed to, to 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 achieve and I think that that process of of real engagement with authors we're not just taking a proposal and publishing it, we're working with authors to ensure it's really making an impact, whether that's a research impact or whether that's a clinical impact. We want to ensure that it's achieving those goals. Yeah. And what, one, one analogy I've often heard of is, you know, authors to publishers as artists, music artists are to record labels, right? In terms of the gating function and how you get that massive distribution. One interesting thing about what, what YouTube did and Twitter and social media, MySpace did to artists is that oftentimes they have to bring their own audience. They have to they have to come in with a following for a record label to be interested because it shows it kind of de-risks and proves there's already an audience here. Let's amplify it. I'm curious, uh, does that ever play a role? Like, how do you see authors of whether it's journal articles or actual books coming to Cambridge Press, University Press, bringing their own following? Is that does that ever play a role? Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because I think increase so for journal authors. I don't think that that is it is such a factor because the number of articles and also there's a there tends to be a much more specific community that an, a journal article is targeted at. For for many textbooks and books that are targeted at the sort of more trade audience, then the the social media presence of an author really can make a huge difference. And I think you know when when a book is published by somebody who already has that social media profile, that book gets an immediate 
bump up, that, that a publisher's activity can never reach the same people in the same way. What we do supplements that and complements and builds on that. But it's, it gets to people, it gets out to an audience in a completely different way. We see that with, with a, one of our big authors on our medical list, Stephen Stahl, who is just an, an amazing profile builder and, and has such a, a following. And, and everything he says is followed by so many people. So we know as soon as we publish one of his books, bang, it's out there. And, and that, as I say, then the publishing promotions complement and build on that in addition. And so it, it really does matter to us. It, it does depend on the type of book. Certainly our trade books are, we love it when an, an author has a, has a positive following in, in social media. It can be very beneficial. No, definitely. I mean, Al introduced me to Dr. Stahl's works and I was very impressed also when I saw that and gra- glad to see that uh, Cambridge Press was working with, with Dr. Stahl. He's so, an amazing man. Definitely. Kind of switching gears into COVID. I would love to hear personally and then also for Cambridge University Press, you know, you're based in the UK. How has COVID impacted your day-to-day? Has Cambridge University Press had to go distributed? And then what are some of the actual changes you all have made? Like, are you picking up more COVID-related titles? Obviously, the journal articles probably have had to publish a number of those articles related to COVID. But yeah, just tell us about a bit more about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So for Cambridge University Press, we shut down the office in the UK in the middle of March. And I have only been into the office twice since then and I've been working from home since then and as somebody who thought that I would never want to work from home I've discovered I actually quite enjoy it the benefits of having my husband bringing me lunch sometimes is really quite nice so yeah I think that the working from home experience has been obviously different for different people and I think one of the things that as an employer we've been very conscious of is is that whilst for someone like me it's worked fine I'm very fortunate I've got space inside and outside some of our colleagues, it, it's really not been okay. And, it, you know, people are, you know, their personal environments can be quite different and it, and it puts different stresses and strains on people. And obviously some people just like to be surrounded by other people. So I think it's it's been challenging. So we've been working from home and that's been true for our offices around the world. We have 50 offices around the world. Obviously the office in New York where, where Al is based, they've been working from home for, for many months as well. Manila, China, et cetera. In terms of our publishing, you're absolutely right. We have seen a, an increase in submission to, to many of our journals, and we have committed to publish COVID-related articles, open access, without charging an open access fee, so for, for this period until the end of this calendar year. And through that, we've seen a, a significant increase in, in the content that we're receiving to, to publish around subject to COVID, both clinical, but also social and economic related articles around COVID. And so that's been significant. And the usage of that content has been massive. We've also published some books. We published one book from the initial conversation with the author through to print and online publication in under three months. And for anyone who is not familiar with book publishing times, that is phenomenal. You know, all the way through from conversation, planning, development, contracting and production, all of that to happen in under three months. And, and, and again, that that really has had such an impact. And I think there are there are actually some benefits to us as well, because it's it's helped us really think about our processes in different ways. Well, if we can do it once in three months, maybe we can speed up other things on a more regular basis. All of our journal articles that are around COVID, we're publishing within 48 hours, and many of them are publishing within 24 hours. Again, that's just helped us think differently about our processes and speed everything up. We also, in terms of giving access to content, we made all of our textbooks available 
so that students could access all of our textbooks available on, online through their institution. So if an institution was a customer of ours in any way, shape or form, we gave them access to our textbooks for free so they could access them and other collections of our, of our books as well. And we did that through until I think it was the end of May, just to help students and institutions through that really bumpy few months when nobody knew how to, to, to get access to, to materials. And we've created blogs and information about COVID to just look at the pandemic through a number of different lenses. So we've tried to, to think about this in, in, in many, many different ways. That's fantastic. I mean, all those are, are, are things we could spend more time talking about. I think the common theme, though, is how quickly you've adjusted and, and modified what you do in this condensed amount of time to be able to raise line, as we say, in the, in the age of COVID. Is there any, th- any time else in Cambridge University Press's history that people, you know, or, or in the archives, they talk about this, maybe the 1918 pandemic, the you know, worldwide flu pandemic, or even before that, any lessons that the organization has taken from other black swan events like what's happened this year? That is such a great question. And actually one we've not asked ourselves. So I'm going to go away and, um, and, and think about that. So, so the answer is definitely no, we haven't drawn lessons from previous pandemics. I think, I think bluntly the world is so different today and the way we've needed to respond has been so different because so much of our response has been around online and it's been ha- how, we, how we've been able to utilise this. I've, I've also seen it in, in the other publishing groups within the press. So I'm responsible for the academic publishing, but we have ELT and education publishing areas as well, education for, for schools. And they, they made loads of materials available for teachers and students available for free. And, and, and in a way that you just wouldn't have been able to do even 10 years ago, many of the things that we've, we've, been, we've done just wouldn't have been possible. So I, whilst I, I'm fascinated now by that question, I don't think we would have been able to draw many lessons. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. Th- things are definitely so different in this context. But I am curious, too, if like questions like, do you get more submissions in the year or two after a pandemic where people have to social distance? You know, is, is a Newton yeah. thing just a fluke or is that something that, that happens regularly after pandemics as an example? Yeah, and, and I, I think we, we will see more submissions. I think what, what I'm going to be really interested to see is with some of the sciences where we've seen people not still not been able to get back to work normally, are we actually going to see a dip in submissions when they've not been able to carry on some of the lab experiments, for example? Will there be some conditions, some areas where, or collaborations that don't happen because people haven't been able to get to conferences? Will there be some areas that that, that actually are slowed down by this and, and other areas that are sped up? And I think there could be quite an interesting thread that we see. Yeah, depending on the field and the type, you know, maybe mathematics you know, is where, unless it's applied mathematics, maybe that's more of an individual thing and like Newton's, Newton's field versus, you know, particle physics, where you need the, you need to be in the hydrogen collider environment or whatnot, whatnot. So I know we're coming up in time, but two other questions I had, one is, you know, our audience is millions of current and future healthcare professionals. What advice would you give to, to someone considering a career in healthcare or even science as a whole to meet the demands of the COVID moment and beyond? I mean, I think one, one thing that, that I find I think is in, in, true for anyone considering a career at all is, is do something you love. We all have to work so incredibly hard these days. You know, there isn't a, a career that you get into that, that you're not going to be pushed to your limits. So make it something you really enjoy and you feel passionate about. And I would imagine that that's true for anybody in the healthcare industry, that you're in it because you care and you want to make a difference. But I, I do think that this is something you, you have to really enjoy. I think the other thing that, that I've, I've taken from 
thinking about my career sometimes is is allowing serendipity to play a part and seeing where that takes takes you because you know I, I do think sometimes I've had I've had really interesting conversations with people at a young point in their career who seem to have it all mapped out and and you just think life probably isn't going to work that way so don't be disappointed if things take a different turn just revel in it and enjoy it but I, I take my hat off to somebody who is is really embarking on a career in in in, in medicine today and committing to to make a difference. I think that there's such a need for people who are really trying to to do something that is going to improve the the healthcare of of, of a nation. That's some excellent advice. I once in college had a lecture by Wilfred Ketterly, a Nobel uh, laureate in physics, and he was talking about how his career certainly was uh, not. A to B linear. It was a zigzag, and he gave it like this wonderful sailing analogy of how he would have to tack and and turn. My last question for you is: Is there anything else you want to get across to our audience that I haven't asked yet? No, I, th- I mean I think you know clearly I would encourage everyone to to look at what we're doing in Cambridge University Press because I think when I think about how publishing is changing and how we can support medics through our publishing and thinking differently about when and how to publish. I guess that's maybe the, the, what I would like people to think about. Rather than always publishing at the end of a process, coming to us when you've got a formed idea, thinking about how we can communicate differently. I think something that as a university press we're really trying to engage with now is the publishing process overall has a potential to change now. And we can think about the products that we create, the services that we offer differently. It doesn't have to just be a digital version of the print products that we had before. There can be quite a different way for us to engage with each other. And that opens up some quite exciting possibilities for the future, I think. So I guess I would just say if people have suggestions or ideas, please come and talk to us because we're always interested to hear them. That's awesome. That's that's great that you're so inviting too, because I imagine you guys get inundated with people who who want to interact with Cambridge University Press. And so With that, Mandy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been fun talking to you. Likewise. And I'm Shivri Blani. Thanks to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.